but I think the I think the harder part was just realizing how uh, the system, or at least my understanding of the system, had failed me. Right, like so we talking about like the educational system. Yeah, I think yeah. I just think that we're told from a very young age that if you do everything right, if you go mm-hmm. to school, if you get the good grades, if you follow like all of these very clear checkpoints, you will get what you want. This is exactly how I felt three weeks into being jobless, homeless, and in one of the toughest transitions of my life. I felt like I'd done the things I was supposed to do, yet was still up against a wall. Before we go back to Langston's interview, let's start from the top. I'm Alexis, and welcome to First Year Project, a podcast highlighting the good, bad, ugly, and integral aspects of first year experiences. Last year, I started this podcast in my bedroom in Washington Heights, New York City. I taught full-time during the day and would interview and record, edit, and produce weekly episodes at night and on weekends. After three years of teaching, I wanted a change. So I put in my notice and decided to bet on myself. I really wanted a little time to explore and figure out what I may want to do next. So I quit my job without having another job in place. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) I'd saved up some money for this. I had a plan. And then the fire happened. Here's a clip of that third week mark. Really just of me honestly struggling. It it is September 4th, 2016. And once again, I am on my way back to Boston. Um, for different reasons, not to record, not for first year project stuff necessarily, but to really just try to like find some consistency and a little bit more serenity given my situation with the fire and me being displaced. And homeless for now is on Tuesday will be three weeks officially, which sucks, I'm going to be honest. Going back and still not having anything figured out um, is terrifying. But also I think a part of it too, there's still a possibility. And that possibility is what keeps me going, so... I hope that you know I have a couple things that have fallen into place so I know the rest will and I just have to trust in that but in the meantime in between time yeah it's it's it sucks but I can't wallow in that So my apartment building caught on fire, like a real deal type of fire, one that ultimately leads to destroyed walls, ceilings, and floors. I completely lost my apartment. And while I was blessed enough to be able to crash on friends' couches, air mattresses, and Ikea pullouts for six to seven weeks, I didn't have a consistent place to stay. I literally had to lug around a huge suitcase 
and a bright red New Balance duffel bag of whatever belongings I could carry with me every week or so across the city. From Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn to Washington Heights, I stayed at friends' homes all over New York. What do you do while life seems to be crumbling around you? I honestly think it varies for folks, but I took this time to grow, to work on projects, and to talk to others about transitions, how to get through them, how to endure past their most difficult moments, and how to come out stronger for it. Here's a recording of my mom and I the day I had to move the rest of my things from New York City back to Boston. We're talking about a transition I didn't even know she went through, a transition involving moving back home, the same transition I was now faced with. I need to go online and take a look at these things. Teacher. When you moved from D.C., when did you move from D.C.? I was in Maryland first, then I was in D.C. I don't know, the late 70s, 80s. And you were moving to Boston? Yeah. That was different because you didn't move home. You didn't move back home, right? I did move back home, and then, I wasn't there long at all, then I moved (laughs) into an apartment with my friend Bernice. How was that transition when you you moved back home to Springfield from D.C.? Well, you know, I just couldn't wait to get, I just had to find an apartment once I got back to Westford Circle. How I couldn't long, live how, there anymore. Oh, why not? Because no, I just couldn't. So Bernice and I got an apartment together. This is in Springfield? A few months. Mm-hmm. And of course, Daddy didn't understand that. Had a big fit about it. So, that's okay. So we lived there. And then... I didn't know you I lived in Springfield Bo- before you came to Boston. Yeah, I did. When you move, why did you move from D.C. again? Long story. Okay. <laughs> when you moved back, though, like, did you feel weird about it? Or, like, like, like did it feel felt like, like you were stayed. backtracking? Yeah. Felt like I should never have left. Mm-hmm. It's awkward. Everything happens for a reason. I agree with that. Okay, it's uh, 7 o'clock. I mean, it's 8 o'clock. And it's just be open. This is actually a minute after. Correct? Yeah. Okay, let's go. Fun fact. My mom can be so shady and ambiguous at times. But she's right. Everything does happen for a reason. Whether you're going through a major transition or not, you will. Again and again. That's exactly what season two of First Year Project is about. In addition to sharing the stories of the good, bad, and integral aspects of first year experiences, we'll also be sharing the stories of those who have or are currently going through transitions. First up, I'd like to share Langston Kerman's story. Y'all may know him as the light-skinned dude named Jared who dated Molly on Issa Rae's HBO series Insecure. But the first time I really met and hung out with Langston was the night before my graduation from undergrad. He was in grad school at the time. Even though my graduation was at like six in the morning, a group of us went out and came back to kick it at a friend's place. Probably until like three in the morning, talking trash and cracking jokes. Not a second went by that this dude Langston wasn't cracking joke after joke, having us rolling on the ground laughing. 
Since then, he's been a writer for Chris Rock and the 2016 Academy Awards show, along with other TV series, and has appeared on Comedy Central, IFC, HBO, and other networks. Stay tuned to hear Langston's story behind his start into comedy, tough transitions, and how being Jared on Insecure has really changed his DMs in the most interesting way. For visuals, check out firstyearproject.com and also make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Snapchat, whatever you use. You can find us at firstyearprj. Once again, firstyearprj. So Langston, mm-hmm. what's going on, brother man? Chilling <laughs> in Boston, doing uh, the comedy thing, and uh, nice. thank you for having me. Yeah. Of course, of course. So, what would you say that you do, and then why do you do it? Uh, I tell jokes. I act. I write. I think I do it all because uh, it's the closest I can come to activating like my truest self in a expression. Um, and yeah, specifically being on stage feels like that more often than not. It's like I get to be me in the swaggiest me I can be in the middle of, uh, just telling funny stuff and talking and getting my ideas out. That's the main motivation, I think. Now, how did you get into comedy in the first place? Uh, I used to write poetry and I guess I still do write poetry, but I used to specifically do like spoken word poetry no, uh, as like a kid in high school. And then partly through college, I would like do performance poetry and compete in slams and like travel with it. And that was my dream. I got it like tattooed on my body and shit. What? Like I really was uh, open to this possibility of being like a slam poet. What does the tattoo say on your body? It doesn't anymore, but at a time I had like, uh, I had, uh, it was a play on my name and it said language on my arm. And it was like uh, written in the cursive that was an extension from a microphone, like the cord of the microphone spelled out language. Very embarrassing. (laughs) I'm super ashamed that it ever was on me, but it, you know, here we are, 2017. Uh, Point being that like I was really into spoken word poetry and I think that ultimately got me super comfortable comfortable on stage and feeling very like activated in my voice or a voice um and I think as I got older I started to feel like spoken word wasn't necessarily uh and poetry specifically wasn't necessarily allowing me the type of active uh interaction with my thoughts in the same way that comedy does like a poem you write it and it is it has a level of permanence like you, once it's written, you recite it that way and then you can change that poem later. But in general, when you're performing for an audience, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes that's a fabrication. That's me going up and pretending to be sad when I'm not sad or pretending to be uh, angry when I'm not angry anymore because it was cathartic and it's over. And now I feel differently. Mm-hmm. But with comedy, I just get to talk shit. And sometimes I'm sad and sometimes I'm happy and all of my jokes can be adjusted to reflect those emotions. So uh, I think comedy 
came out of that. And specifically it came out of like leaving undergrad and moving back home and living in my mom's basement and working at my old high school and feeling all of the sad things that I never wanted to feel. And so I decided I was going to go tell some funnies and see if that worked out. So I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but you actually, you have a master's in, uh, is it creative writing or is it actually a a master's in poetry? Poetry, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Which is interesting because, I mean, in terms of, I think the first time we met when you were at BU, mm-hmm. I just was like, this dude is one of the funniest niggas I've ever Hell yeah. uh, <laughs> met in my entire boom, life. Boom, 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 boom. Write this it down. This is like night before my <laughs> own undergrad graduation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we were at uh, my friend Andrea's house, a whole, uh, uh, like a whole bunch of us. And I was like, this dude is freaking hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah, that's all the affirmation I've ever uh, needed. Uh, I can quit now. No. What made you want to get a master's in poetry? Uh, I wanted to be able to upgrade my lifestyle, but I didn't want to have to go back to school for anything that I didn't want to do. Mm. Like I, I, I spent a year teaching at my old high school right after undergrad. Okay. And so I didn't want to live back home, and I didn't want to be in my mom's basement anymore. But I also couldn't imagine the idea of going back through school Mm. and like specifically going back through school in a way that didn't feel good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there are parts of school that are super dope because you're studying the things you really care about. And then you're like, I took classes on oceanography and like that was dope. Like I liked learning about like oceans and fish and waves and, you know, air currents and all that stuff. But I don't want to go back to school for that. Mm -hmm. So like I made a choice that like I was going to pick the least profitable thing (laughs) that I could do, but also the one that felt most like the person that I, you know, wanted to be when I'm doing it. So. Yeah. So what was the toughest part of going back to your mama's house and your mama's basement and kind of trying to figure out what you wanted to do next? Uh, Well, there's two things. I think I gave my mom a big speech when I left. Like I sat her down and was like, lady, I'm never coming back here. This is the end of our relationship. You're cut off. Whatever joy you've you're, experienced. You're yeah, you're cut off. Whatever okay. you've gotten out of me. And I've been wonderful to you. I've been a good son. Once this is done, I'm out. Um, I think that, you know, there's like this embarrassment of having to go back home. And she told me, she was like, nah, you'll be back. Like this, that's not how it works. Like people will come back home. They mm-hmm. deal with, you know, whatever that means. And so like she was right. I had to come back and I had to sort of piece it together from there. But I think the, I think the harder part was just realizing how uh, the system or at least my understanding of the system have failed me, right? Like, so we... Talking about, like, the educational system. Yeah, I think yeah. I just think that we're told from a very young age that if you do everything right, if you go mm-hmm. to school, if you get the good grades, if you follow, like, all of these very clear checkpoints, you will get what you want. And so by the time that I finished undergrad, I had very little idea specifically of what I could do and very little resources to actually do those few things that I thought I wanted to do. And so I think it was a great motivator in a certain way for me to say like, all right, everything I thought was supposed to work didn't. Uh So let me try uh, a different route. Let me just see if stand up is, is a better way to do it. Um, because what else do I have to lose? I live with my mom. 
where, <laughs> where was I cannot the first... emphasize that enough. I live with my mom. <laughs> no, I don't. Not anymore. Where uh, was the first place that you did stand up? Was it in Chicago or was it? Uh... Yeah, it was in Chicago. I man, I keep forgetting the name. I think it was called Doc Ryan's. Mm-hmm. It was in a, a. It's in. It's not technically Chicago. It's in a town called Forest Park, Illinois. Which is uh, adjacent to the neighborhood that I grow grew up in, which is Oak Park, Illinois. Mm-hmm. So they're right next to each other. It's a very like uh, Irish, uh, working like middle class kind of town. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was cool because this dude Anthony Clark, who's now a teacher at the high school I was teaching at, um, was running an open mic there, like a comedy open mic. He was doing comedy at the time. I, he doesn't really do it anymore. But, um, yeah, he was, like, running an open mic, and I showed up there, and I didn't tell anybody, friends, family, anybody. I just went by myself, and uh, I went and did just okay enough to want to go back the next week. And so every week I would go back to that mic until I started to figure out, like, oh, there are other mics in the city? I'm going to go try that. And then eventually, like, figured the rest of it out. Now, when you were at that first club, did you ever tell, like, family and friends, like, hey, just, like, come by? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably by like the fifth week of doing it, I had like built enough confidence where I was willing to tell people I was doing it. And then eventually they wanted to come just to be able to see if like I was actually doing it and (laughs) actually good. And I wasn't. And very few people just like go up and are funny in the first place. But, uh, to do stand up comedy all you need is affirmation we're Mm. sick in that way so like uh a lot of times it's just a moment of affirmation it's not that everybody's laughing at your jokes it's just that we can hear one person laugh in a way that we wanted them to laugh and that's enough for us to go back and want to fix it and then you do it for long enough i'm now seven years into doing it that like most people when I'm talking laugh and occasionally someone doesn't and that'll keep me awake at night but the rest of it is like all right I'm starting to piece it together I'm starting to become more of the comic I want to be yeah and less of just one begging for laughter from strangers what's a mistake that kind of like uh sticks out to you from that like first year of getting into comedy oh man uh, I think there are learned lessons in terms of like uh, relationship building and and managing some of those relationships. I think all of it is networking and all of it is sort of like getting to know your peers. And I think there were times when I probably were was investing in spaces and people that weren't necessarily uh, healthy for my goals and didn't match my my wants. What do you mean by that? I think that that uh, like if someone's working a type of room that you just know isn't beneficial to to your growth Mm. and you keep tagging along because they're cool or because they have something that you want, then that's that's bad management on your part. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about like these tangible wants and like, oh, well, you get up every night or you get to play in actual like shows. I want to play in actual shows, so I'll tag along. And then you tag along and you do the show and you realize like, oh, I just bombs because this ain't my my situation. This ain't my crowd. Mm-hmm. This isn't my circumstances. I'm not being brought into this. I'm just sort of like showing up. I think I had a few moments like that where like I remember specifically bombing super hard, getting booed by this dude Dang. in a in a room where uh it was like a two hundred seat like uh open space at this real shitty club called the Checkerboard Lounge in Chicago. Um and it was this cat's birthday. He was wearing all white 
Uh, Wait, I'm sorry. He wasn't. Like, are we talking about like an all white too? No, no, no. He had on like a, a linen uh, outfit, <laughs> okay. all white, and a crown. He was wearing a crown and stunner shades. Was he R. Kelly? No, he wasn't, but easily mistakable. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, he just it. It was his birthday, and so it was supposed to be like this birthday variety kind of vibe, whatever. But it's this giant space that there were only like twelve people and fifteen people, and so it's already wrong circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's on the other side of the city, so I'm driving mad far to be able to get to this place just to be able to do like five minutes because the dude I was with wanted to put me on. Mm-hmm. And that's a very sweet thing that he was doing. But I knew instinctually that this wasn't the right thing for me. Yeah. And I wanted to prove something or I wanted to be a part of it. And I think that's it's it's weird to call it a mistake just because it's it's a great learning experience. Like there was a lot of growth that came out of it. So I don't necessarily look at it like that. Mm -hmm. But I went up did the five minutes worth of jokes I had. And by minute three, there was a dude in the back who wasn't even facing the stage. He was watching a basketball game at the bar in a different direction. He was just like, boo, nigga, boo, boo, (laughs) boo. And just kept going. And I had to like eat that while the audience continued not to laugh. And like, how do you get through something like that? Boo, nigga, boo is aggressive. It's not only like, man, I don't like your stuff. It's like personal. Yeah, no, it was very personal. But what am I going to do? I'm not funny enough yet to do anything. I can't out funny that. Mm. That's funny. So I laughed and finished. I wrapped up and thanked them and went about my evening. Because what else was I going to do? And I rode home real sad and pretended like it wasn't my fault. And it was. And, you know, eventually you get better. Now, if I show up at the checkerboard lounge under those same circumstances, I'll either do better or I'll be smart enough not to go up at all. You know what I mean? So it's just kind of the deal. Yeah. Now, when did things really like start to fall into place? Mm, I don't know. Well, fall into place is like such a subjective thing. So it's sort of, uh, I think the, the best thing that's ever happened to me was figuring out a way and it's not figuring out sounds like I did it specifically, but like I now am under the, the, uh, I'm now in the position that I am able to do comedy full time. That's how I make my money is comedy and acting and writing. And that's all I really wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are individual moments that happened along that path that aided or almost like sort of made it certain that I wasn't going to have to necessarily pay bills uh, a different way for a while. But like, you know. Um, Chris Rock was kind enough to bring me along and let me write for him on his team for the Oscars. How did you meet Chris Rock or how did you even get that opportunity? Um, it's sort of a long, it's not that long, but like I was, I was working on a development project with someone that, uh, had worked with him in the past. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, they thought that they could get Chris to uh, sort of take interest in the project that I was writing and wanted him to come out to a show to see me so that he could then like make bigger decisions. Um, And so he came out to a spot I did in Brooklyn. He saw me. He saw actually another comic that was there um, named Namesh, who's very funny. Namesh Patel and he's uh he saw us both and he was like I like these kids and nothing else really came out of it that night like we kind of just chatted outside and he was cool and then um like a few months later he hit me up like yo or he didn't specifically hit me up but um the other guy hit me up and he was like yo uh Chris wants you to write on his team and so I got you know the offer and went with it because obviously 
Um, yeah. And so you know, I, I turned it down. I was like, no, 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 Mr. Rock. I have, I've got a lot of teaching to do. Uh, I've got a very busy teaching schedule. No, I, I, yeah, I went with that and it was dope. It was, you know, it was a very like cool experience. And that was the moment at which I was able to quit my job sort of full time. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that had I not laid the groundwork through other actions and had done a lot of other things that that would have meant a permanent leaving of education. Like I could have easily quit and then ended up right back in the classroom in six months. And now it's been like a year and a half. And so I'm, you know, every week I'm trying to hustle up new ideas and come up with new things to make sure I never have to go back. So what year was that? Like 2000. So I wrote on the 2016 team, but we didn't start. We started writing in um, like I, I started writing in November of 2015 mm -hmm. and probably met him in like <sighs> August of 2015. And yeah, I've been, you know, very lucky since to sort of stay busy. And that's really all you want in this industry is like to never have like those like long month, three months, whatever it is, periods where no one's calling. Mm -hmm. um, and you hope that you're producing enough and being active enough that you give them incentive to call because you can't nobody can just wait on the phone calls anymore. That's not how it works. Nah. Yeah. Nah, that's not how you get the coins. Mm -mm. So I don't know if folks realize this about you, too, but you were actually a teacher yeah. 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 I taught full time for three years and then I taught various forms of part time for like another three or four. What did you teach? Uh, ninth, 11th and 12th grade English was like my full time position. And then uh, when I was doing like part time work, it was more of like um, I had a year where I taught uh, like poetry. Mm -hmm. There was a, a few years where I worked in like after school programming, doing like more like uh, academic support um, and like tutoring. Um, and then I've also taught for like the uh, the, you know, standardized testing people like helping them like mm -hmm. learn to uh, pay me money to do marginally better on a test <laughs> <laughs> to still not get high enough scores to really solve their problems. Yeah. What's the funniest thing a, a, a child has ever said to you? I used to be an educator, so I know mm. children uh, can be hilarious. I don't know if I have like a, a funniest thing off the top of my head, but I, I think that anytime I had the pleasure of listening to the thought process of little boys <laughs> and their plans for the girls that they were dating, Got it was it. a thrill for me. It's just like the the way that they like game and the way that they're like their whole perspective on things is so funny. What was one of their perspectives? I mean, it's the same thing we know about like kids that they just like, it's like, yo, you know, I'm just trying to beat Mr. Kerman. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know how to do that though. Like, how do I make her feel special so I could just beat it up? You know what I mean? Like, oh it's like, no, nah, that's not, I'm not gonna like help you have <laughs> sex with that little girl, man. I'm not gonna like help you talk this through. Oh, uh, that is hilarious. Now, uh, outside of you writing for Chris Rock, I mean, you have like, you have a, a nice little list of credits, mm -hmm. bruh. I keep busy. I do all right. No, it's fine. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I see you as a writer for uh, the upcoming Comedy Central show. Yeah, I uh, wrote. I wrote on the pilot. 
um, that they probably won't even use. But I, yeah, I was a part of like the team that developed the pilot. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool. That was a, a fun gig. Moshe's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Appeared on Comedy Central. Yeah. Uh, IFC, the Oxygen Network you had as like a disclaimer. Mm-mm. Yeah, I hate uh, that I did that. But yeah, you know, <laughs> hustling's funny when you ain't got nothing. Well, what was the what was the program called the Oxygen Network? <laughs> I did this show called uh, uh, My Crazy Love, which was produced by a very funny comic, a very great dude, Greg Barrett, who um, I'm a big fan of. But uh, the the network itself was putting together this show where basically people would come in and they would tell a uh, wild love story. Right. And then they would have like actors act out the, uh, you know, the scenes Mm -hmm. of that crazy love story. So sort of like, you know, um, unsolved mysteries, but with love as opposed to uh, murder and rape and disappearances. Got it. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I acted. You act out these crazy yeah there was like this lady who was like a mechanic and like thought her boyfriend was cheating on her and was like but basically broke into his house and like destroyed everything only to find out that it was his cousin the whole time that he was like spending time with and i played the dude and like whatever it was it was uh it was something It was something at the time. Last but not least, um, you you have it written down on your website as that one. I'm sorry, one of the light skinned dudes <laughs> <laughs> on Issa Rae's uh, HBO series. Yeah. So how did how did that come about? Uh, I was very fortunate to have met uh, Prentice Penny, who is the uh, producer. Mm. is the showrunner for that show mm-hmm. um uh, about a year not maybe a year six months before he got the showrunner gig um and the auditions came around and i auditioned and got in contact with him it was like yo i'm auditioning just wanted to give you a heads up and they liked it and they let me do it which is really crazy that yeah. they would do that um and i had no uh sense of what number one what my role in the show was going to be and it ended up being much more substantial than i ever expected uh not that i'm like you know the main character any by any means but it's just sort of like i very much anticipated being in the pilot and then never again Mm -hmm. and then i ended up being in a bunch of it yeah um which was really cool but you know they it's it's one of those things where it was a mix of being the right fit for what they needed and also you know having enough relationships that you know you can stay communicative and active and be a part of it. So that show is amazing. And I knew it was going to be amazing before. I didn't realize, I guess, how amazing it was yeah, going yeah. to be. Um, and it's funny because, like, when uh, Yvonne Orgy, who I also interviewed mm-hmm. on Friendship Project, what, but Molly in the show, when she found out that you were fluid sexually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or bisexual. Jared is. Yeah, yeah for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I Jared is. What was funny is, like, I would hit up folks that we both know. I'd be like, dang, did you see that episode? Langston's bi. That's crazy. Yeah, no, Langston's not. <laughs> Langston's pretending. And that's been uh, <laughs> quite a thrill to explain to everyone I know from uh, from that experience. Do, do you have any friends of yours who obviously watch the show who just automatically are like Langston, 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 and, and 
Everybody. <laughs> Nobody separates the character. And that's maybe that's normal. I'm sure that's the thing. I think until you become like, number one, I know where like my acting range is. And like, I, I feel like I did well with the show, but it's not like uh, I'm not Denzel. You know what I mean? Like you watch Malcolm X and you're like, God damn, Malcolm X is wild. Like, oh <laughs> shit, they killed Malcolm. And like, you don't think it's Denzel. And like, I'm I'm not Denzel. So it's like, I, this is the one thing they've seen me do on TV. Mm-hmm. And so Langston did this. I get it. I'm not mad at anyone for it. But you know, the hope is that you get good enough at the art that like, they no longer feel like this immediate association with uh, just that character it's True. like you get to be whoever you're pretending to be and then separate you, your own life from that experience true 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 yeah now uh, another thing that i remember distinctly and i'm not 100 percent sure why is there is there any reason in particular why they made your character work from enterprise like at enterprise like it was very i think there was like a scene with the enterprise logo in the background and everything no i think i think they just wanted him to have a regular job mm. And one that sort of matched his uh, credentials. He didn't go to college. He didn't sort of have any, um, you know, super worldly experiences necessarily. Although he was, I think, a very socially intelligent person. Um, So he worked at Enterprise because he was good with people. And like, you know, wasn't he wasn't a scrub. He was a manager in Enterprise. But he also wasn't like popping yeah and they needed that contrast and i think in a lot of ways in terms of like molly's character who very much uh was popping in terms of like the way the world sees her she's a lawyer she's you know got it all everybody thinks she's cool and can talk to all these people but then when it breaks down to social intelligence and emotional intelligence she might be one of the weakest people on the show yeah you know what i mean um, so it, it sort of became a very, I think, nice contrast. Mm-hmm. In, I assume in the writer's room, I wasn't I'm not a part of the writer's room, but I you know, you can feel it where it's like this feels like two people who are sort of butting heads for all the wrong reasons, but in a very uh, entertaining way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's a major transition that you had to get through to kind of get where you are currently? Um. I think a lesson I learned at, and I was very fortunate to learn this lesson as early as I did, but a lesson I learned uh, a long time ago when there's a thing called the Boston Comedy Festival, which is like a, a reasonably large festival in the country, but it's huge around Boston. Okay. And every Boston comedian that, you know, lives and works in this area is excited to be a part of it in some, you know, form or another. But a friend of mine, Alingon Mitra, who just did Colbert a mm-hmm. few months ago, very funny dude, was a part of the festival. And I remember him specifically going and doing it and getting a bunch of like uh, meetings with like MTV or Comedy Central, whoever, and they call him down to New York. And that's a big deal if you live in Boston to get that call to like go to a meeting in New York, a general meeting in New York. <laughs> so he goes and he's excited and he, he has to sit down with them and they say, Lingon, we love you. We think you're so funny. Tell us what you do. And he says, uh, I do comedy. You saw, remember, because you came to the thing and you called me to come down here to yeah. New York City to talk to you. And they're like, yeah, but what do you do? He's like, yeah, I know. I told you I do comedy. This is my thing. And they're like, OK, um, well, great meeting you. And, you know, that's not, you know, obviously it lasted a little longer than that. But the point is, is that like they felt like there was nothing to be gained. 
of that situation. And Alingon came back a little disappointed and he told a few of us. And I remember immediately hearing that and thinking to myself, I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the dude that, that they have to send away because I don't have other things that I do or Mm. other resources that I can pull on. And so as soon as I heard that, I started writing for myself and not just I I obviously had been writing jokes for myself, but mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to write scripts for myself. I wanted to be able to write premises for web series or for bigger ideas so that when the call comes, I am able to walk into that room and say, here are eight things I know how to do that are not just comedy. Mm. I want to learn how to act. I want to learn how to write. I want to learn how to perform in a way that doesn't limit your usefulness of me. Because at the end of the day, stand up is a very limited resource to the people that make choices in Hollywood. They're like, all right, well, we can put you on stage, but okay, what does that mean? Like at best at your level stage just means that you're maybe making a hundred people laugh. 150 maybe a thousand if you know we find the right room and the right resources whatever it is but if we can get you on tv through your writing through your acting whatever it is we can make a million people laugh at one time 500,000 whatever it is and there's more money to be made that way so stand-up is not a um a resource that they're like super invested in. And I think that was a really important lesson for me is that I can use stand up and plan to continue to use stand up for the rest of my life as a way of getting into the doors that ultimately um, enable other doors to open, but it's not the stopping point. Yeah. As you get bigger. Yeah. Which you will. I like it. Um, What are you like nervous about in terms of what that may include? Uh, I get a lot of, uh, DM slides now that, uh, make me very nervous. I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I'd like to not be threatened with as many, uh, penises and vaginas as I've been threatened Wait, with. penises as well. Yeah, both. Yeah. Again, people do not detach the identity of Jared from the person. And even in the show, when Jared very clearly explains that he's not gay and has no expectations to continue to pursue any male relationships, people are still like, yo, what's up, cutie? And it's like, all right, well, I'm with not. With the pig. Yeah. Well, I've gotten some, not, not that many picks it's a lot of like spitting game got it um and it's about it's not 50 50 it's mostly it's like 60 40 women to men Uh kind of thing but there's a lot of dudes that really (laughs) try to pull and it's like you know i've had to and it's a touchy it's actually a very touchy line for me really i think because i don't mind compliments like if a dude goes and he's like yo i think you're sexy it's like all right cool thanks man but then it turns into like uh i know i know men i know why we're doing what we're doing Mm. and so it becomes this uh intent versus like uh you know action Mm -hmm. and so i have no problem sending back thank you and like moving on with my day but at the point where like you're continuing to try to build a conversation i then have to step in and figure out the politest way to say like yo i see what you're doing all power to you but i'm not going to continue to like flirt that's not how this is gonna work you know what i mean and Uh like you have to be respectful you have to sort of understand that like i get it you know men are we're gross we just are (laughs) and like no in no form 
of, of sexuality are we not the same people this is true we just happen to some be attracted to dudes and mm. some not and some both and some other and like that's fine but like i'm not gonna play along just because you're gross yeah no that would be so weird yeah i feel bad for i mean more than anything i just feel bad for women because <laughs> Y'all deal with that all the time. All the time. Like, I'm dealing with it now because I'm a, a F-list celebrity, whatever. <laughs> but, like, y'all are constantly in just being a regular-ass person going to work. You can go to work at Target and, like, still get the same level of, like, crazy language and, and aggressive attacks that I get just, you know, from having done a TV show. That's crazy. Yeah. I was not expecting girls that. go through a lot more. So, uh, yeah, that's I, that's probably my biggest fear that and you just want to be able to stay active. You want to stay working. You want to feel like you're never going to run out of ideas. And I think we're all a little afraid that maybe that might be a thing. It's not. I, I don't actually believe it, but I think there's something in all, in my head at all times like, well, that's your last joke. You're out. So uh, <laughs> you better figure out a backup plan, Playboy, because there you go. Um but that's not the case. I'll keep writing more shit. Now, what are you looking forward to uh, for the rest of 2017? Mm. Uh, whew. What am I looking forward to for the rest of 2017? I think a lot of cool stuff. There, you know, there's so many TV shows I want to see and uh, <laughs> hanging out. I want to do, but I think for my career, I just want to do more which feels very vague and like sort of bullshitty. But I think, you know, right now I'm probably like out most nights doing comedy. And what I really want to push to is doing it like multiple times a night. And mm. like, I want to be able to travel to States I've never been to and get into clubs. I've never really been in. And like, I'd love to get stronger in terms of like some of my uh, performance as an actor and really like stretch those muscles um, and I'd like to see some of the writing I've been working on uh, take form in like actual television so that it's my thing that I'm performing in and not just somebody else's. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like all of those things are on their way and like very much in sort of the formative stages, but happening. And I see them really like hitting in 2017. So all that's exciting. Um, yeah. And that was very uh, vague, but, you know, I can't give y'all specifics. I don't even know you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Listeners, I don't know y'all. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being yeah, on the show. Thank you for having me. This I appreciate was fun. it. Uh, how can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Langston Kerman, L-A-N-G-S-T-O-N-K-E-R-M-A-N. And that's everything. Yeah. You have a site too, though, right? Yeah, it's just LangstonKerman.com, and I rarely update my show dates because I'm an idiot and uh, <laughs> don't know how to take advantage of a good thing. And thank you so much to all these people who email me sometimes and are like, hey, I thought you were great. And then I say nothing because I'm an idiot, because I'm not good at communicating, and I'm so sorry for that. He's, he's going to get better, y'all. I probably won't. That's what's <laughs> sad. I'm probably not. Nah, I am going to. I'm going to try to get better. But no, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's podcast, y'all. We're not quite done yet, though. I know each and every one of you has your own transitions you've been through or are currently going through. Sharing is caring, y'all. Hit me up on Twitter at FirstYearPRJ. 
Once again, first year, P as in Paul, R as in Ryan, J as in John. Hit me up with your stories dealing with transitions. What did you have to get through? And how'd you get through it? Let me know and make sure to use the hashtag WWYW. Stands for work while you wait. Right, that inner work that all of us have to do during these transitions, that hustling we all have to do during these transitions. Make sure to include that tag, WWYW. You could also drop me a voice memo at firstyearprj at gmail.com. And I'll actually try to add them to the end of the next episode. Either way, though, y'all, let's share. Production and editing on today's podcast was done by myself. You can find me on social media at underscore Alexis Clater on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you to Chantel Acta, A-C-D-A. That's how you spell that last name. Thank you so much for the background music. You can find her work on SoundCloud. And to those listening, old listeners, new listeners, thank y'all so much. This really does mean the world to me that you, you know, take the time to listen to my work or read my work or share my work or subscribe to my work. So I really, really appreciate um Yeah, I really appreciate the love and I really appreciate the encouragement to keep going. So thank you. Have a dope day. Have a dope week. Until next time.